The date is Friday, May 15th, and you're listening to Entertain This, a thought-provoking podcast encapsulating all things entertainment. On today's episode, Nick leads a discussion on the 1995 film Apollo 13, providing historical context, as well as his own opinions on the film. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this week's episode of Entertain This. I'm this episode's host, Nick, and as always, I'm joined by... I'm Alex. And I'm Michael. Welcome, you guys. Uh, today, we'll be talking about one of my favorite movies, easily in my top ten list. If It might even be in my top three, depending on which day and which way the wind is blowing. But I think it's really fitting that we record this episode on the 13th day of the month, May 13th, as a tongue-in-cheek nod to the mission that went so wrong, Apollo 13. To get this out of the way, I'm not superstitious, but it's been said that I am a little stitious at times, uh, but that this is good timing. On account of elongated muskrat, he's launching people, he's putting astronauts into space May 27th from American soil for the first time since 2011. Um, ever since then, we've had to hitch a ride from the Russians, which is, you know, a blessing in disguise, but it's another reason why it's relevant today, and we're doing another quarantine this, uh, and we have a story about a guy that was quarantined in this movie. Um, hey, that's so, all pretty relevant. Yeah, yeah I'm staying with uh-oh. the times, you know me. Yeah, it's um, good. Elon <laughs> Musk is also in the news for other things. He just made the yeah. first rocket ship inside of a human woman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did. Oh, hey, yeah. there it is. <laughs> Elongated muskrat. Pretty sure he came as close as he could to naming his child binary. Yep. <laughs> it seems like that, yeah. doesn't it? What yeah. is that child's name? Does anyone know? I, I've seen people like decode it Alpha. as like Kyle. But then, like, another person will decode it as, like, Sophie. I don't even know, like, what... I remember seeing I remember seeing an interview um, where Elon Musk, like, broke it down as to, like, why they named their child that. But the name is XAEA12. Yeah, that makes and sense. And I'm pretty sure the A, like, the, the A that is also an E, he said is pronounced, like, Zax. Or something like that, like Zach, like a normal name, is how that's pronounced. It doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Well, one thing that we do know, one thing that we do know now is that it is perfectly legal to name your child in Wingdings, which is great, and I'm excited <laughs> for the future. God I can't wait until the first right? poop emoji child comes out and pronounced like Katie or Brittany. I'm pretty sure it's already happened. No, I'm I'm a hundred percent sure it's already happened. Yeah. So, Nick, we're here to talk about what? (laughs) We're here to talk about rockets. We're here to talk about space. We're here to talk about everything but Elon Musk. (laughs) We talked about him so much, though. I know. Elon Musk, the final frontier. (laughs) He's a bit of a meme, and I'm glad you brought that up, the final frontier, because we will get to that soon. Uh, Mm. On this episode of Entertain This. Okay, so let's peep this out. Uh, Space. It's the final frontier, as so many have called it. And you may have already guessed it, but I'm going to geek out here for a while about space. And I've always been a huge space nerd. In fifth grade, uh, they would call me the walking encyclopedia of space stuff. <laughs> That's not a lie. Wow. I have over 400 hours That's in a, a game. a mouthful of a nickname. <laughs> I know, it really is. I have over 400 hours in the game called Kerbal Space Program. Uh, maybe you've heard about mm. it, but it's a, it's a sandbox rocket building game in which you launch folks to other planets and... You can go to the moon, you can fly around other planets, you know, do whatever you want, pretty much. And you have to, like, build the rockets right there on the launch pad, don't you? Yep. And then, like, yep. your rocket can fail and all that? Yeah, it'll blow up if you don't do it right. 
That's super interesting. <laughs> I've never played it, but I've definitely seen people play it. It's a blast. <laughs> More ways than one. <laughs> um, it's the first of many puns, so buckle up, kids. Uh, <laughs> I've also watched the space shuttle take off many times on TV. Um, never did it in person because I was too young, but I've been to Kennedy Space Center um, once, been to an observatory. Uh, I was part of astronomy club in grade school. I have a scale Lego model of the Saturn V rocket on my steroid banister, as you guys might have seen. Wow. Yeah, um, I did see that, made completely out of Legos. It's super, I have not. It was fun to make. Um, it, just look up a It's picture. pretty impressive. It's a big Nick, were you, were you that kid in uh, elementary school, like that one kid, that special individual who got to go to space camp? No, but surprisingly enough, Natalie did. Michael, you went to space camp. I also did. I have heard. I went to space camp. I have heard nothing about space camp ever. I just yeah. thought that it was a cliche from TV. No, I. So I went to a uh, parent-child space camp. Whoa! Uh, down at, uh, I think it was in Georgia. I don't remember exactly where, but it was like a joint NASA uh, Air Force uh, training center, and. Uh, my dad and I went down there, and it was an incredibly awesome time. So we got to do the whole, like, you know the whole thing where they, like, uh, strap you into, like, a, a centrifuge. big ball that, like, rotates yeah, a centrifuge. on, like, all that? Yeah, 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 that thing. Um, I got to do that. I got to do the whole, like, spinning around, creating the G-forces. Mm-hmm. Um, got to do, like, some Air Force training for, like, search and rescue in, like, uh, water uh water airplane crashes damn that's awesome stuff like that yeah it was a crazy time and i got to do uh simulations of flying uh aircrafts and rockets did you crash and it was oh many times, many times. <laughs> awesome that's mm-hmm. so cool yeah yeah if if you have the ability to uh even as an adult try and go hell yeah i don't know if they'll let you but if you can do it that sounds awesome <laughs> close enough to a kid you know i mean mm-hmm. might as well try it out Maybe I just need to have a kid. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Become a dad so I can go to space camp. There you go. Yep. <laughs> um, but I, I think I've shown my credentials here, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm a nut mm. when it comes to space. But I think at very least, you guys both like Star Wars. I mean, that's in space, right? Yeah, we had an yeah. entire episode about it a couple episodes back. Mm-hmm. You guys should listen to that after one listening call to this it, one if you haven't yet. One would call it an extravaganza. <laughs> it was May the 4th, or close to. <laughs> If, yeah, may the fourth be with you. Um, no, but I, as you I know, actually like I have a very deep love for space as well. So mm. it's like uh, like my favorite class I ever took in college was astrology. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like the one at the college that I went to, the class was so good because we have like a full like projection planetarium. Oh yeah, you know, I remember to do, like, that. A full simulations. Yeah, you might have been in my class. Who knows? Maybe. What's the difference between astronomy and astrology? Oh, buddy. <laughs> astrology is like uh, the, the star signs and the Taurus and the Virgo and all that. Mm-hmm. Astronomy is uh, the study of, how would I say this? Like the planets and the stars and stuff. Space. Not the position hey. of the stars and the influence on us, but more like just space in general. You know, galaxies, yeah. nebulas, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. One would call one a science and another one would call the other fake. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there probably aren't planets up there. Let's keep going. <laughs> I, was, I didn't want to go there. <laughs> sure, I'll but, be the uh, controversial one. <laughs> <laughs> Controversial. This. this is why you get to be the cute one. 
Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I get to be cute on a podcast where people don't get to see our faces. Great. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you figured out my formula. <laughs> <laughs> our formula for success. Um, speaking of success, America is one of the only countries to put a man on the moon. We're the only country, not one of them, but the only so far wow. at the date of recording this in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think part of my obsession with space is the, uh, the quote unquote America vibes this movie gives off because mm-hmm. U.S. history to me is fascinating. And I don't know why, but in many ways, it's cyclic. You can see trends emerge over long periods of time, like the ebb and flow of our power and prestige in the world. And you can see our values have pretty much been the same on, on paper. If there's a frontier, we're going to go there and take it. I mean, this is this is like Manifest Destiny 101, the westward expansion into Pacific, the from sea to shining, shining sea, as you as you hear in the, uh, uh, is it Pledge of Allegiance, Star Spangled Banner? Star Spangled Banner. There you, there you go. go. I'm a bad U.S. It's happening, a, it's happening again with Mars now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're trying to. <laughs> yeah, we're least. trying to get there first. The space race is uh, alive and well. Yeah, some would say that. I wouldn't. But uh, again, we'll get to that very soon. Um, <laughs> but it is, it is within this context of exploration that we, we look at space as the final frontier, like you said before, Michael. And it's the 50s and the 60s. America was riding high. We just won World War II. We had a ton of babies. They were boomers, which may not have been a good or a bad thing. But the Spider-Man comics were just released, and we're feeling pretty good. The That's cherry right. on top of all this is putting a man on the moon. In 1969, we barely had computers, and they were essentially just glorified calculators at this point. And we said, awesome, throw a bunch of these shits in a rocket, and let's go towards the moon. The balls of that back then, let alone now, was incredible. Back then, the U.S. had an attitude that we could do anything. We were optimistic as hell. I mean, um, post-Vietnam, this kind of changes, because uh, we were pretty much the best in, in you know the global realm, as far as military might goes. The, the stars, stripes, and rockets were glare, but... And we thought we had the biggest and best military wiener out there. And we couldn't wait to show it to everyone. And Vietnam was the woman that looks at it and says, is that it? It was a serious blow to our self-confidence. And I would argue we didn't fully recover from that ever. But Nick, what does this have to do with entertainment? Uh, not much. <laughs> oh, podcast over. All right. We get the... All right. Let's close it. Um, no, but this this is entertaining to me. So just... You know, kind of bear with me. We'll get to the to the end. Enough of enough of the dick metaphors. On to space. <laughs> um, but I th- I think space and space exploration in general is is a very cool thing. Maybe it's the it's the man and machine working together, like like Iron Man in a way, or maybe yeah. it's just it's unearthly. By definition, space is everything outside of our pale, pale blue dot. It's home, and we don't have a plan B. And I I, I led this down like this this train of thought, which is like, well, how would life be different if we did have a second planet that was within our reach? Would that change anything? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it totally would. Yeah. Would we trash this planet more? We'd be like, man, we don't need this planet. We got another one down the road. Well, here's something that I was talking to Chloe about earlier today, even, um, is that overpopulation is quickly becoming a problem on our planet. Sure. Um, and I, I've noticed more recently in like times where people have to stay inside that I haven't gotten gas in two months. Like, I've gotten gas twice since this started. And mm-hmm. when I do get gas, I fill up my tank for less than $20, yeah. which mm-hmm. is crazy because usually it's like 35 ish to fill up my tank. But I'm doing it for 20 bucks because 
the demand for gas has gone down so much. You have to think, if there were two planets and we split the population among those two planets, the supply and demand of the ep- economic world would completely shift, you know? It'd be different, for sure. I think yeah. it would be a lot, a lot different. Um, we'd probably trash this one. <laughs> you think so? Like, oh, yeah. We got, like, we, got a, we got a second planet. We got a planet B down the road. You know, we don't need this shit anymore. But that's just me. Maybe it's cynical. I don't know. Maybe it'd be, maybe it's optimistic in some ways. Um, but that'd be cool. If we, if I were to travel to space, I think that'd be really cool. That's that's the end all be all. That's the bottom line here. Um, experiencing zero G would be pretty cool. I mean, just the the whole. You ever heard the phrase "We stand on the shoulders of giants"? That's really I what. Heard it. Yeah, that's really what the Apollo program was all about. It's taking these these ideas, these theories. Like we couldn't even like wrap our heads around the the concept of orbiting a planet until uh, Newton had proposed it in the 1600s. And then here come the 50s and 60s, and suddenly we have rockets and jets and all these other stuff. Airplanes can fly high, but they couldn't go all that fast until this particular point in time. Yeah. And this is all to just, this is all, um, uh, as I said before, this is like an art gallery, and you have to understand the piece of art that is this movie and the context around it that makes the movie so great, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so to answer your question, that's how it ties into entertainment. Um, <laughs> but to preface this story about Apollo 13, I'd like you guys to tell me a story about a time when things just went from bad to worse, when something happened and it caused a cascade of events that put you in a situation where you're worse. Oh, man. <laughs> Probably not hard. Really, you're put, uh, No, it's not at all. But, man, this isn't something I wanted to talk about on, on, on a, a public podcast. Here we go. <laughs> okay, so... Um, there was one night where, um, my decision in the dinner that my family ate cascaded into what I thought at the time completely ruined my life three days later. You're going to have to tell me a little more about that. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, we're all familiar with food poisoning. Just, we, we all wish that it didn't happen the day that you were taking who you thought was the cutest girl in school to a movie. Oh, no. It's the worst. Oh, it's so bad. I did a whole stand-up routine on it a a very long time ago, back when I uh, was doing stand-up for a very short amount of time, and I hope to get back to it, but that's a story for another time. Let's just leave it at that. (laughs) Okay. Michael, what you got? Um, I don't... I can't think of any specific situation, but just a general thing that always ends up leading to it is uh, lying. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always find that like lying about something ends up causing me to, you know, skid down a path of uh, never-ending consequences uh, fairly soon. <laughs> they after. snowball. Yeah, yeah. It's like the butterfly effect, except mm-hmm. with I don't know. misery. Misery. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's a great. That's a great. Great stories, you guys. Um, but here's a little background on the space program up until this point. Um, Apollo 13, as you know, is the 13th Apollo mission. Uh, So before then, what do we do? Let me answer that. Um, (laughs) This is just a little... (laughs) Nope. (laughs) This is just a little uh, Nick's self-indulgent edutain this portion. Um, You said Nooks because of Animal Crossing. I'm just saying, keep going. Mm. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So this all started with Nazi rocket scientists after World War II. 
they're responsible for both the American and Soviet space programs. It's it's called Operation Paperclip was the official name. Um, I don't know why. Code names are kind of silly anyways. Uh, if you're going to say something about Clippy, I don't want to hear it. Yep. <laughs> First thing I thought of was Nazi Clippy. <laughs> Nazi Clippy with a little Hitler mustache. With a little yeah. armband going across his whole paperclip body. <laughs> Okay, if that's how it helps you remember it, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we coerced them uh, to chill with us, these Nazi rocket scientists. We were like, hey, you want some uh, You want some sauerkraut? You want some lager, some schnitzel? Oh, yeah, we got it. Come on over here. And if not, we're going to try you for war crimes, okay? Um, <laughs> that's completely but, out of left field. It is, but that's exactly how it happened. Um, now, before you start saying, here he goes talking about World War II again, Give me some slack, because this is where we will stop the discussion for now. Um, which leads to the neat conspiracy of the Nazi moon base. And again, there is no evidence for this, but this is the one that's most plausible out of all the conspiracies that I've talked about so far. So, the Soviets are the first to launch the first orbital satellite in the ni late 1950s. Um, the U.S. is caught with our pants down. There's no way around that. Uh, they put the first man into orbit some, some years after that, and the U.S. is again like, what the fuck, dude? And this is a big deal for a lot of reasons. Not only is it a national embarrassment because we're caught with our pants down, but in the Cold War dick-waving contest, it proves that Soviet rocket technology, and hence missile technology, is way beyond ours, and they can nuke us without having to fly bombers overhead. The idea of an intercontinental ballistic missile, or an ICBM, has come to fruition. And the scary part is, we still have these nukes, too. It's a deterrent. Um, but this renders our defense systems obsolete in a matter of minutes. Radar and distant early warning system ain't going to do shit against an orbital nuke coming down at Mach 5. <clears throat> Something so. kind of interesting, just that I want to throw on top of that. Yeah. Um, from my expansive knowledge of comic books, there's a classic comic book trope that was circling around this time, like the 1960s, 1970s, that I'm sure you guys are very familiar with, and that's the bad guy having a laser satellite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A satellite in space that could shoot a laser and destroy the city, the world, things like that. This is where that started, and that's because comic books, believe it or not, reflect history a lot. Uh, something yeah. that I forgot to mention in the last episode is that... Um, Timely Comics, the ones that started out um, before they, it became Atlas and then Marvel, they have an entire they have an entire comic book run where uh, they have Captain America, who punches Hitler. Hell yeah! Like straight up, just punches Hitler, and that's because yeah. comic books back then were super heavily influenced by the world around them. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, so right. <laughs> Some might say it's propaganda yeah, around that time. That too. Maybe it is. It's not my place to say, but the U.S. response to this is, oh, fuck, I can't believe you've done this. We formed NASA in the 60s to get our shit together and at least be as good as the USSR, the Soviet Union. And JFK gives this speech, as you might, might have uh, heard in history class, but it's, we choose to go to the moon before this decade is out. Uh, whether or not he was for real in saying this, I don't know. It's not that my place. That was incredible. Thank you. That, that was, was very. That was really good. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, I've listened to this speech a lot, so... <laughs> Fair enough. It's a good-ass speech. Um, but we just barely do it. Apollo lands on the moon. Apollo 11 lands on the moon in July of 1969. We only had, like, five more months to go before the decade was kaput. Um, but then, of course, he's assassinated in November 1963, and uh, it's a big oof. And there's another conspiracy. 
theory. And once again, we're not going there. The conspiracy counter is, I think, up to four if you're following along at home. But we, we get our shit together and we say, we got to do this for JFK. <laughs> Part of the reason the U.S. was so slow to get our asses moving is the, the lead rocket scientist in charge, Werner von Braun, had this philosophy of designing everything super conservatively, very safely, test and test again, redundant systems for everything critical. And there's also, uh, there's also not a lot of funding, too, which is super important. The bureaucratic gra- glacier of Congress was moving very slow, as it still does today. But the Soviets didn't give a shit about safety, and I think that's safe to say. They could have very well beaten the U.S. to the moon, but because moon-capable rockets are so large and they kept blowing up, we got there first. So I guess that's kind of lucky in, in our regards. But to this day, no other nation has put a man on the moon. So how big are we talking these moon rockets are? So put this in perspective. Imagine, um, you know, the Kroger building downtown here in Cincinnati, right? Yeah. Yep. It's pretty big. It's roughly 300 feet tall which is how big the Saturn V moon rocket is, okay? That's wow. a big, entire, massive thing. This thing moves and spews out flames. It's a big-ass rocket. And, ours and that's all that it does, right? Like, it just, like, all of that room is just used for, like, blasting. Yep, pretty much. Yeah. And uh, if you have, like, a, a graphite pencil around, like a number two pencil, you can take um, the just the tip, the black part of that, the pencil lead part, and that's the part that goes to space and returns. The rest of it's all just for... Wow. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Ours is called the Saturn V, if you don't know that already. Um, it's still out there somewhere, then. What? Floating He's... in the depths of space. Oh, yeah, there's pieces of rockets still out there orbiting the Earth today. Oh, man. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, but building moon rockets is hard, and it's expensive, and nobody wants to do it. And a robot can do it just as easy. And the moon is just kind of uninteresting, to be honest. I mean, it's a lifeless, dusty boy out there in space. Um, lifeless, dusty boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But That's how my new band name. This? No one else take it. <laughs> it's very expensive. Um, Elongated Muskrat has made his SpaceX empire on building cheaper rockets. So you can do the math, right? NASA had 4% of the U.S. federal budget in 1965. So nowadays, 0 0.4%, um, which is how much NASA gets nowadays, ain't shit compared to that. Yeah. Um, the Apollo program cost about a quarter of a trillion dollars in today's money. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of money even for the U.S. government. Um, but NASA got all this money, and they're like, fuck it, let's go to the moon. So in 1969, Apollo had this big old successful landing. Public sentiment is just like, okay, cool, we did it. Uh, what now? Been there, done that, right? After that, Congress kind of scales back the Apollo program in response. Originally, there would have been Apollo 20, um, but after that, Apollo 17 is the, the final lunar mission. So, what begins as Cold War dick-waving over missile, t- missile technology turns into be this great leap forward in science. We have Apollo to thank for integrated circuitry, uh, computer mom boards, graphics cards, f- freeze-dried food, LEDs in your monitors, shiny LEDs, you know, all these things. Um, but during this time, also, we had this raging conflict. Yeah, good job, NASA. We got all this shit for them. Um, but there's a raging conflict in Vietnam during this time. It's, it's going on during this moon landing. And I think the U.S. public was kind of looking for a a way of entertainment and escapism. So they flip on the TV and they see, oh, there's Neil Armstrong. He's on the face of the moon. Awesome. Um, obviously this doesn't keep up for very long because, you know, 
attention spans are very short, especially when we're talking about the American public. But when this happens, Apollo 13 briefly brings back the public's attention. We have this big uh-oh moment in spaceflight, and you could take this mission into a meme if you wanted to, and it would be the uh, the Windows task failed successfully window, if you've seen that. Um, mm. <laughs> but things failed, and astronauts nearly died. Um, and that's kind of what sets, us, sets the stage for this movie. Uh, there's some other Apollo missions, too, as I mentioned before. But again, these are just for funsies and testing mostly. Uh, a notable one to mention here is Apollo 1, which is exactly where this movie starts. So here's a plot discussion. And the movie is Apollo 13. There we go. <laughs> we are about 20 minutes in. Shut up. <laughs> you know how I do things. I got to set the stage first, and then we can... I got to foreplay a little before I, you know... Buddy, you built the stage. Yeah. Before I commence the uh, activity. As, as Let's rock this show. It's opening Let's, night, baby. Let's do it. Let's blast Put the off. lights on. Start the music. Let's blast off. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. But Apollo 1 was originally intended to be uh, a test of the command module. That's the... The graphite part of the pencil, as I was talking about before, that's the, the very tippy top of the rocket where the astronauts sit. It's, uh, it's conical shaped, kind of a, like a soccer cone type of shape, um, and it's roughly the interior size of like a, a micro bus or one of those moving vans you see. So it's pretty cramped in there. Um, this is one of the few pieces that actually goes to space and returns. Uh, everything below that is just a piece of rocket. It's not really spacecraft, um, but we got to make sure that every space part of the work Every, every piece that, that takes up in the rocket, it's got to work. So this is one of those tests. The movie opens with these three astronauts entering the command module. They're walking through the gantry, and they're, they're all suited up, you know, like they're going to go to space. This is a dress rehearsal, as it's referred to. And Walter Cronkite gives the opening VO. He's explaining Apollo 1 and Apollo 11, because this is after the fact. Um, but this is like a, uh, a dress rehearsal. And they, they go to test the rocket, and they load the fuel onto it. This is before they load the fuel. So this rocket doesn't have anything in it. It's just an empty case. But they have to test all the electronics. The technical term is called plugs out. So they take all the plugs out of the rocket, all the tubes, and they just let it stand there and, you know, run the computer hardware, whatever they got to do. So back then, they used to use pure oxygen pressurization in the cockpit. And there's a really good re reason why we don't do this on airplanes today. Pure oxygen is super flammable, and somewhere in the cockpit, there's a spark, and these astronauts are burned alive with no way out. The cabin oh hatch God. is wow. sealed shut. And there's actually a, a very gruesome recording of this somewhere on the internet. The, they, they say, fire, fire, and then all you hear is screaming after that, and it's really bad. Whoa. Yeah. But um, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that one bit. Yeah, that hitting at the same time as Vietnam, the American people were down on their luck. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was in 1966, I think, the Apollo oh. 1 fire. But most astronauts know what they're getting into when they're sitting on top of a stack of explosives. But this really hurts the reputation of NASA. They were badasses that died in that fire. They were all Air Force test pilots at the top of their class. And two had already been to space already on previous missions. And they were family men. Um, Roger Chaffee, Ed White, and Gus Grissom tragically lost their lives that day. But more about this, these astronauts are, are, are test pilots through and through. I mean, they, they have the balls to joke to a reporter about uh, unlucky 13, quote-unquote, as they, as they let a black cat walk under the lunar descent ladder with a broken mirror. Um, this is the Apollo 13 astronauts joking about this. Because, you know, they're, they're test pilots. They're like, yeah, I can handle anything, whatever. 
this hyper masculine. Well, it's also just like whatever. If it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. Yeah, exactly. You, you kind of know what you're getting into. Hey, let's whip this thing back around to Spider Man, huh? Okay, go it's for the it. Same, it's the same kind of logic behind Peter Parker. He makes all these quips not to, uh, like, psych out the villain. It's to keep his head straight. Exactly. And that's exactly what these astronauts are doing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. They're joking yeah. about it because uh, well, they're freaking are, out. Yeah, I would be too. Yeah. You're going to fling me into space on a giant moving building? <laughs> that's kind this of This could be a suicide mission, so might as well pretend like it's not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But we flash forward to 1969. Um, we have this tragedy in mind because the movie opens on it. But you can see why these men's wives would be so worried about their upcoming mission. Um, and that's that's displayed in the movie. Um, the, the main character, is, uh, his name is Jim Lovell. He's an actual historical person. But uh, his wife and his kids are, are all pretty concerned about his upcoming moon mission. Because, I mean, yes, uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin have landed on the moon. And there's also another mission, Apollo 12, both successful, mostly successful. Um, there's little minor, minor uh, disturbances in the force, as 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 there were, but um, these are largely successful missions. And uh, even then, you you think Apollo 13, 13 is an unlucky number. I don't know, but regardless, if you survive the launch and make it into space, now you have to go way the frick out there, land, and then come back. And that's a lot of time flying through the vacuum of space that will kill an unsuited human being in less than 30 seconds. There's no air out there. It's cold as hell. The sun will ass blast you with radiation and asphyxiation will be the official cause of your death. But it's really dangerous out there and humans work best on solid earth. I think you guys can attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> right. There are brief references in this movie to the counterculture of the 60s uh, with, with Jim Lovell's daughter who's, who's crying about the Beatles breaking up which is pretty tragic even nowadays. Um, <laughs> but they, they train and they train in these simulations, memorizing every possible procedure and contingency. And there's no way to prepare what, for what eventually did happen, despite all this. And it's a resulting cascade of problems that nobody could have prepared for. Um, once again, the main character, Jim Lovell, explains the entire mission through, uh, through toys with his son. So that kind of frames, even if you don't know anything about the Apollo missions, it kind of puts you in that frame of mind. Like, here's a giant building rocket that's blasting off through space. This piece falls off, this piece falls off, this piece goes down the moon, etc., etc. Um, but CGI is used sparingly, which is surprising to me. Um, it's, it's 1995, which is probably for the best, but when it's used, it's pretty obvious and it's pretty bad. Um, they just, you know, they just didn't have the CGI budget or the computer. Back then, it... Then. Back then, it was crazy, though. It was extraordinary. Oh, you know? yeah. Like, how do you bring this massive building rocket to life? Somehow, they did it with CGI back then. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, so here we are at the launch, right? I'm going to jump forward a little bit. The second stage engine, it's a cluster of five. There's stages in a rocket. There's That's another way for uh, pieces or different rockets Yeah. within the rocket itself. I know it's confusing. Um, but the second stage, which is a second piece of rocket after the first stage kind of falls off, it prematurely shuts off. And that's that's a problem. That's the first problem of many. Yeah. But it's not that big of a deal because, again, because of Werner von Braun, these engines are redundant. So if one burns out, there's four others to take its place, and they just have to burn for a little bit longer. So the contingency plan, yep, you burn a little longer, and you just boost on into orbit. No big deal. Um, so the, the big four major networks don't carry the launch, 
They don't carry the uh, the live broadcast in space because they just don't care. The American public is already like, we've been there. We've done that. We don't need this. They did cover Apollo 12 and Apollo 11. But yeah. once it got to 13, they were just like, who cares? We've already been there, dude. Um, but this is day three in transit. So I think it's a, it's a seven-day mission. It's a week long. And uh, the third day, the oxygen tanks are stirred after this live TV, TV broadcast. And this is causing a, a rupture or explosion. And this is where the, the quintessential line comes into play. Houston, we have a problem. Mm. That's where this comes from. If you've ever heard that phrase, this is the movie. This is the, the mission that, that it coined it. Yeah. So um, pretty crazy. Now this may be a dumb this may be a dumb question. Is Houston a person or are they talking about the place? Um interestingly enough it's both. <laughs> so oh, okay. <laughs> uh, Houston is where flight control is. Um that's where that's where all these gotcha. people sit, mission control. They sit in this building and they have one person that communicates actually with the astronauts and their call sign is Houston. So when they're calling down to mm. Houston, they're calling to the flight director. Uh, who his name is uh, Gene Krantz at this time. And he's like, he's like, oh, fuck. Well, he doesn't say that in the movie, but <laughs> you can only he imagine should. what's going through his head. <laughs> he probably said it in real life. That would have earned them an yeah, R. It's like, oh, fuck, you guys, come on. Everything was going so well. But yeah, they stir the oxygen tank, big old explosion. Um, yeah, they, they launch from uh, Florida, Cape Canaveral, uh, Kennedy Space Center. Uh, yep. But Houston is where Mission Control is, just so you know. Um, one thing this movie does really well is adding drama where there was none. And that's either a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But these, as I said before, these are flight, these are um, these are test pilots with years of experience. So when the shit hits the fan, they're pretty calm and collected. Uh, there isn't a whole lot of yelling or screaming. It's just like, okay, uh, no big deal. We'll just do this contingency program. Nerves of steel, Okay. <laughs> but a, a fun fact about these guys they hold the record for the farthest ventures from earth no one has ever been this far away until now they're circling around the back side mm. of the moon in what's called a, a free return tra trajectory uh so they circle back they use the moon's gravity to slingshot around and then they'll slow down to orbit the moon land the lander rendezvous the orbiter break moon orbit and go home that's how it's supposed to work um they still slingshot around the moon no problem uh, but without oxygen, they're fucked, frankly. Um, and uh, the electric that the, the capsule needs also comes from oxygen via fuel cells. Mm -hmm. So they're running out of power. They're drawing too much current to keep life support running. And this is during the entire voyage. And that's what causes them to, uh, in air quotes, lose the moon. It's no longer possible for them to land. And they look out the window. This thing they've been training so hard to do, they can no longer do it because of an oxygen tank explosion. Um, they look out the moon and the moon mocks them. They're so close, but so far away. Now, this is when the media starts paying attention when the shit hits the fan. As you know, they do. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. They don't think they will survive. Because, I mean, if you don't have air, you're not going to live. You're just going to, you know? <laughs> yeah, some call that suffocating. Yeah, yeah, asphyxiating, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Good name for it. <laughs> no air. Mm -hmm. um, like the song. Is that a song? Baby, how you yeah. gonna breathe with no air? <laughs> That's how I feel when I know I'm in a moon vessel. <laughs> but um, more problems arise, and it's not just with Alex's singing. 
Uh, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Fair point. The heat is now off to save power, and it's dark. It's day five. These guys have been in the in this capsule, this VW microbus, for five days now. They're floating around, of course, because there's no gravity. Um, there is gravity, but they're moving so fast, blah, 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 blah. Microgravity, something, something. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they are now living in the lunar module, which is the part that's designed to land on the moon. And this is when the problems are coming from. They're doing these things that the technology and these these things that they built to land on the moon, they weren't designed to do this. Um, there's a good line from the flight director during the movie that says, I don't care what it was made to do. I want to know what it was, de- what it does, what it can do. He says something like that with less pauses and stupid mess ups, but uh, contingency That's probably plans how he said it in real life, though. Yeah, sure. He yeah. said it just like that. Um, <laughs> contingency plans are now out the window and they have to figure out everything out on the fly. <laughs> it's a pun there. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but carbon dioxide. You love puns. I do. Oh, I really do. <laughs> carbon dioxide begins to rise because I don't know if you know this about us, but we exhale. You know, we inhale oxygen, exhale carbon dioxide. You know, so your respiration, and they right. need filters. Mission has this solution, but it requires putting a square peg in a round hole. And uh, it, there's this big scene where they're all in the room and they're like, "How do we? How do we do this? How do we do this?" They do it with duct tape. At the end of the day, of course, because it's a miracle material. You're so um, right. <laughs> but it works. The carbon dioxide. Slap works. that baby on with the might of Zeus. Yep. Mm. <laughs> Slap. What's that? Flex tape? Yeah, flex, like tape. That? yeah flex tape. They didn't tape. have flex tape back then. This is not a paid promotion, by the way. Um. <laughs> but if you would like it to be, contact us at uh, Phil Swift, where are you entertain at? this at gmail.com. <laughs> entertain this podcast at gmail.com. There it is. <laughs> But power is still an issue, even after this thing works with duct tape and flux tape and Phil Swift. Um, They need to shut down things in order to turn them back on in a very specific order as not to overload the batteries with amperes or amps. Um, Gary Sinise's character is on the ground uh, in the simulator trying to figure out this procedure. He's he's the guy that was quarantined because they they did a test on him and they found uh, that he has measles. He didn't end up getting measles, but you can't go to space with that because you'll get everyone else sick. Yeah. Um, but Gary Sinise's character's on the ground. He's like, he's bummed out, you know. He's like, ah, oh, I wanted to go to the moon, but I bet he's happy that he didn't. He wasn't on this particular mission. Um, the the soundtrack during this is really good. It's perfectly timed in the key moments. It's this rising action of the horns, but the whole world is watching at this point, except for maybe Russia, of course. And there's a million things that could still go wrong, even after they solve the power problem. And here comes the spacecraft. It's just about to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere faster than a bullet, as the newscast says. And it really is. It's moving at, what, uh, 3,000 feet a second or something like that? This thing's booking it. It's at Mach 12 or something like that, and it's going to hit the atmosphere going that speed. And obviously that's going to cause some some heat to build up because you've seen a comet, you know, you've seen an asteroid when they zoom in at that speed, it causes them to heat up and, you know, you get that trail of uh, stardust as they call it. But there's like this tense three minute blackout when they're falling back to earth. And typically uh, there's the boring science behind this, but the speed of them entering the atmosphere will ionize the air around them and make radio transmissions impossible. And it ends up taking a bit longer than that. It's very tense. It actually ends up being like four minutes. But the, the families are, are watching this, and they, they think they die after three minutes. 
until they break the silence. And they made it. It's this tearjerker moment, and the music hits you just at the right spot. I teared up a little when I watched this. I'm, you know, I'm a big man. I'll admit it. Yeah. Um, but it's really emotional. But they get down. They splash down in the Pacific Ocean. No problem. Um, you, you knew how this movie was going to end all throughout it, but it's such a ride to get there that you're happy for everyone in the end. And it leaves you feeling tearful and happy. Yeah. And uh, that's that's really the the arc of this movie, the, the the plot discussion. But Tom Hanks' character, Jim Lovell, narrates this at the end. He tells what the main characters did with their lives. Um, I think I think a couple of the, the actual astronauts are still with us. Tom Hanks is definitely still with us. Um, but thank God, <laughs> but it ends on this note of, he says, I, I wonder when we'll go back and I wonder when or who it will be. Uh, spoiler alert. We still haven't. And it's no one. And it's a thorn in my side, but I completely understand knowing all this stuff about moon rockets and how big they are and how dangerous they are. Yeah. I mean, obviously they don't do this anymore, but they can burn you to a crisp. And they can blow up on the launch pad like so many Soviet rockets did. The Soviets had a a similar program, but the problem was they couldn't get the rocket to go up. It kept going sideways. So making a movie like this is hard for the obvious reasons, right? You're in space. Right. Um, But this is another example of why you shouldn't travel anywhere with Tom Hanks. The movies for the likes of (laughs) there's Toy Story, there's Forrest Gump, there's Saving Private Ryan. There's Castaway. There's Castaway. In the '90s, Tom Hanks was on a roll with the. Well, there's even the the like I am the Captain Now movie. Yeah, yeah. You really can't. He went to Australia to film a movie. Ended up getting coronavirus. He has terrible (laughs) luck traveling. Yeah. If you learn one thing from this podcast, don't travel with Tom Hanks. Okay. (laughs) But part part of the why behind I think this movie was made in, in the climate of the 90s and I really don't remember too much because I was just hatched when this movie was made um, but what I can tell you about this decade and what I recall and what I've been told is that the, the Soviet Union had just collapsed in 1991 the US was the sole superpower and we had this great feeling of optimism about the future we thought yeah we can we can do fusion power we can go back to the moon we can do all this we're the United States woohoo um, but <laughs> this film really oozes America and why we're the best in that opinion. Uh, you, you can debate this, of course. Um, I've never been outside the United States. Uh, maybe someday I will. Um, but everything about this film oozes America and this kind of stars and stripes type of thing. And it kind of gels with the optimism of the 90s, I think. Lieutenant Dan, as you know, Gary Sinise, is also yep. in this movie. And he oh. plays, yeah, he plays the guy on the ground who had the measles. Um, Kevin Bacon is also in this movie, making everyone within one degree of bacon. And uh, Bill Paxton is also in there to round out the astronaut crew. Um, there's three in flight and one on the ground because of the measles, of course. Uh, and um, Gary Sinise's character was was the the prime crew. He was he was the one that's supposed to go there, but um, uh, Kevin Bacon's character has to. Has, he was part of the backup, so um, that's that's how they did things back then. They had the prime crew, and then they had like the the second string, if you will, uh, yeah. that, just in JV. case anything went wrong. JV astronaut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he still gets the letter. We wouldn't, he wouldn't appreciate that. Of course. <laughs> uh, I forget the astronaut's name, but if you're listening, I'm very sorry. Please don't kill me. And also hi. Hi. Like, hello. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening, yeah. buddy. Uh, mm-hmm. 
You're a hero. Okay, so it's directed by your boy. Junior varsity hero. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to get us in trouble. Um, uh, whatever. <laughs> but it's directed by your boy, Ron Howard, of The Da Vinci Code and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And get this, he also directed Solo, a Star Wars story. So he's an okay director, in my opinion. Um, please don't send me hate mail. You might be the best in your book. Um, but this is the year after the 1994 release of Forrest Gump, of course. So Tom Hanks and Gary Sinise have this this bonded kind of uh, relationship. Um, but strangely, they don't have a ton of screen time together as Gary Sinise's character is on the ground and Tom Hanks is literally as far away as you can possibly be. Um, and this space. is based on... Space is big, okay? Uh, this is based on the book 1994... Um, it's called Lost Moon, The Perilous Voyage of Apollo 13 by astronaut Jim Lovell. And uh, I think I think the level of detail within this movie, too, every line that Mission Control says in Houston is taken off the, the transcripts and recordings from the Apollo 13 spaceflight. Wow. Yeah, and you can find these recordings, too, if you're, if you're ever so curious. Uh, they're on the Internet somewhere. And you can read line per line exactly what they say to the T. Wow. And uh, another another cool, f- fun movie fact about this is for any uh, quote-unquote zero-gravity scenes, they built a mock-up of the internals of a spacecraft inside uh, inside one of these aircrafts that does parabolic dives to simulate gravity. Oh. Yep. Yeah. And so gotcha. it's, there's these brief 23 seconds that they have to film in microgravity. And they have to do <laughs> every single uh, time they're in space, they have to do this. So they have to go up and back down, up and down. So, yeah, it kind of limits your shot length, but you honestly cannot tell within the movie. And that's pretty cool if you ask me. Yeah. Um, and there's a ton of historically accurate replicas made. Uh, I think they had uh, they actually had Jim Lovell on the set. He's like, yeah, here's the switch that goes there and all that. And obviously there's photographs of these things around, so they kind of they use those, I, I like to think. But the amount of detail that's put into this movie is is something that really shows. I mean, just... Looking at the Wikipedia page for this, there's there's only a very, very, very small snippet of things that weren't accurate. And most of those were just done to make a good film, like amping up the drama, like I said before. Right. But to these filmmakers, I think it's it's paying homage to these brave men. And it's a it's a labor of love to make a technically accurate film. And it it pays off. This film wins awards. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture and winning Best Film Editing and Best Sound. And I think it deserves these 100%. Yeah. I mean... Totally agree. Compared to other movies of the time, which I don't remember because that was one. Um, I mean, I love when (laughs) filmmakers take, like, special precaution, especially when making these, like, um, not documentary, but but they're they're biopics is what they're called. Sure. Um, But it's where they like look into all these details and they look into like where all the button layouts were and they look into all the stuff and they make it extremely accurate. I like when they put that heart into it, it shows that they're passionate about the project they're making, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely pays off and it shows. Yeah. And I think part of that is because they knew there was going to be some guy in the peanut gallery who was like, well, actually you didn't put this switch in the right spot. If you look at this picture, uh, right. Space nerds tend to be like that. I know I am for sure. Uh, yeah. I'm obviously not going to go on a forum and complain about it, but I think it's a great kind of kind of like you were saying, 
it's so important every inch and every little detail of building a rocket ship everything matters the placement of the buttons matter how close they are how big they are all matter in case of emergencies or just doing the job on the aircraft to make sure that it flies and they had to pay attention to that stuff or else it'd be an inaccurate film and you would notice things like that they make buttons bigger ones that you're going to have to press during emergencies because you have to find them quick yeah so that's a big red button as it's called yeah exactly i think one of those buttons would probably be the launch escape tower um that's the that's the big pointy thing at the top kind of looks like an antenna but that's the part that rips the capsule off of the rocket in the case of an emergency and obviously i'd like to think that that button was big that's the oh fuck button right (laughs) yeah that's the get me out of here button (laughs) right um i don't even know if they had ejector seats on those rockets i'd have to double check that I, i don't think they did i think that was one of the ones that the parachute opens and they land in the ocean and then the boat gets out and goes and gets them. <laughs> That's how all the Apollo missions ended. Yeah. With the splashdown. Yeah. Um, but anyways, here's the, here's the verdict. Okay. If you're interested in taking an emotional ride through space, this is the movie for you. And at the time of writing this, the only place you can really stream this is YouTube, not Hulu. And there's a little asterisk here. It is on Hulu, but only if you have the bullshit stars with the Z add on. You can you can watch it not on Netflix only on Hulu mm-hmm. Stars or you can rent it through YouTube. I paid money to watch this movie again, which is something I really hate doing. But damn it, it's worth every penny, and it's yeah. an awesome film. But I will say the subject matter isn't for everyone. If it does sound vaguely interesting to you, I'd recommend that you simply entertain this. And thank you for listening to me gorge about a spaceman Whoa. film for a while. That was good. That was very good. That was a good work in. Yeah entertain it hey i'm glad that you really like that movie and you're very passionate about it and very passionate about space and i know that because i've been to your house i've seen your (laughs) lego (laughs) spaceship and it's very impressive you've seen my toys (laughs) i have um i do have to ask though when building it are would you say that building it in lego form was as meticulous as building the actual rocket would you say the stuff on the inside was as detailed Hell no. <laughs> no. I didn't think so. But hey, I always leave it up to Lego to do stuff like that. Their Death Star is very impressive. Yeah, there's there's a separate kit for the for the command module, the actual space part. And oh really? Yeah. Or no, maybe it's the lunar lander. But there's a spec there's a separate kit for that. This is just the rocket. And I don't think right. it even holds a candle to the amount of complexity and piping and plumbing and fuel tanks that went into the actual rocket. It comes nowhere close, <laughs> but you do get a sense for the scale because that thing took me what, probably about eight hours to build. Um, yeah, it was it's difficult. About, it's about two feet long, from what I remember, two to three feet. Uh, yeah, three feet, I'd say. It's it's a big ass thing, and yeah. uh, I think if anything, you get a sense for the scale. <clears throat> but that's man, that's awesome. Yeah, it was, a, and a cool fun fact about this. I'm full of fun facts today, aren't I? Yeah, um, <laughs> but it had nineteen or 1,969 pieces, 1969 pieces, which is the date that Apollo 11 landed, the year that wow. it landed. Isn't that crazy? That's very yeah. cool. I yeah. wonder if they added extra pieces or, like, broke pieces in <laughs> yeah, half to make like, it exactly <laughs> that. Add a couple more in there. Right? <laughs> and just turn those that one long full piece into uh, two by one. <laughs> we have to get the exact number right. Like, was good with stuff like that. We could probably do an entire episode on Lego, to be honest. Write that down. Somebody write that down. Here we go. (laughs) Entertain Legos. Lego ties this. We all do. Yeah. Hey, guys. 
Hey. I hosted last week. You did, didn't you? What yeah, that, that mean means again? that means that I get the quick this this week. Hey. And boy howdy, <laughs> I think that I have something pretty good. Mm, I think that howdy. I'm I'm really into using the quick this segment to find the most obscure corners of entertainment, the most <laughs> exclusive clubs that people join for entertainment purposes. And I think that I found one of those today. Yeah. Really? What'd you well, got? not that I found it today. I found it a while ago, but I do want to make it more public. And I think this is the perfect forum, the perfect soapbox to jump up on and talk about it. Please do. Uh, I will start your five minutes whenever you are ready, sir. All right. Um, I will start my five minutes right about now. So it is my sophomore year of high school. And up the street from my high school, there was a putt-putt golf course. And every weekend, we would go up there, me and a group of my friends, just to play putt-putt and mess around. Because we were, we were still at that age where we weren't exactly trying to be adults yet, but we didn't exactly want to be kids. So getting in a big group and going putt-putt golfing was like the perfect thing. Because we get to be kids, but we're out there on our own, so we're adults. Very adult, on this yeah. one, Yeah, on this one faithful weekend, um, we end up going to this putt-putt golf course. And it's weird because usually this putt-putt golf course is in the back of this shopping center in the corner, like up in the woods. You have to take like a back road and to get up there. All the paint's old, rusted, things of that nature. <laughs> and it's usually completely dead. There's nobody there. But in this one case, it was packed. We're like, what's going on? We look around, there are all these men dressed in what looked like professional golfing attire, like the gloves, they had like caddies, and we're like, what is going on here? We start asking questions, and we find out that the PPA has taken our putt-putt golfing course and has been using it for tournaments. Hmm. Now, what you might be asking is... Go ahead. What is the PPA? Thank you, Michael. <laughs> mm -hmm. The PPA is the Professional Putters Association. There's a professional putt-putt golf association of the world like the regular like masters like the the professional golfing like people the people like tiger woods mm -hmm. i don't know much about golf um golfers is what they call them the golfers <laughs> there <you> whoa go. <laughs> there's a miniature golf version of this and the funny thing is let's throw it back back in time back around the time where the vietnam war and things were going on and the apollo missions were happening what else was happening in the world was a bit earlier in the 1930s, there was the earliest documented mini golf competitions that were played in the United States. Hmm. The first National Tom Thumb Open Tournament was arranged in the 1930s. Way back in the 1930s, this, this miniature putt-putt golf association has been going on. And back then, the total cash purse was $10,000. And with inflation, Ooh. it's about $150,000 to the winner of this miniature golf competition. Nice. How's that? How about that? Now, what was what was crazy about that day is that there were people there who were talking about it so seriously, like it was this lifelong goal of theirs to become this best putt putt golfer, and they have their own version of like the they call it, I believe, the green jacket that they get instead of the gold jacket that you get for winning. I think the Masters maybe. Um, but at the time we were watching them and they were getting hole in one after hole in one after hole in one. And they said their goal is to get a perfect game, get a hole-in-one in every single, every single hole. And once they do that, they feel like they're ready 
to go to tournaments that happen around the world, like the um, one in Kingsport, Tennessee, uh, or the one in like the 2020 PPA National Championship is in um, Bernadina Beach, Florida this year. Like they get to travel all around the United States and compete in mini golf. Hmm. Wow. I don't want to win, <laughs> but I want to play. I'm not good at mini golf, and I don't claim to be, but it's it's like 18 holes of mini golf. And, I mean, this competition has been going on since the 1930s and, like, got really big back in the 1970s. And you can win, like, cash prizes and just travel all over the place. And it's only, like, a 50-buck entry fee. And you're in for, like, upwards of, like, $6,000 in prize money for winning a putt-putt golf tournament. Damn. How hmm. crazy is that? And they get, like, models out there, and the models are, like, pretending to putt-putt, and, like, oh. it's this big event. They get models at, like, car shows, so it's not. Like... <laughs> That's yeah, come on. true. Let's your enthusiasm a little but bit. This, <laughs> but this isn't a car show. This isn't classic cars. This is a bunch of men who have retired from their luxurious jobs of being a lawyer or a doctor or whatever they want to be, golf and they players. become professional putt-putt golfers. Hey, what? Are they professional putt putt golfers or professional putt putt players? They are professional putt putt golfers, from what they called okay. themselves on that day well, of days that I discovered that this existed. They really miss a chance for some good alliteration, so that's a strike against them. Yeah, come on, guys. Putt putt putt. Well done on that pun that you may have not intentionally done. That was incredible. Anyway, that's all I have to say. So I'm not even taking the whole five minutes. I'm just here to talk about putt-putt golf <laughs> and how incredible I think it is that people compete in it for cash prizes. Would you guys be down to do this with me? For sure. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Because we can go yeah. to the place. Like, we can go, go the there. Place. We'll go to the putt-putt place. We'll putt-putt. Well, if we're going to do this, we need to actually like do some training and everything. Like, I'm not, I'm like, not going to settle on, for uh... full on montage, like oh, yeah, 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 yeah. full on music <laughs> that pumps us up. Some jock jams going on. Mm. We roll our khakis up and show off our fancy <laughs> golfing socks with different designs mm-hmm. on them. Their hairy legs. I want mine to have lizards. There you go. Yeah, I'm down for it. Training yeah, we'll montage. Do. We got to do a lot of push-ups. Um, we have to yeah. find a very large set of stairs. Yep. <laughs> uh, with uh, my long socks and my uh, newspaper boy cap, you gotta have the hat. The hats, the hats, key. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They tell you that in the rules. With I want to go visor with a sweater vest bow tie combo. There you go. I want the sweater vest bow tie combo, but I want a visor that I can like put way down on my face so that's like <laughs> like covering my eyes. I think that that's the way I want to no. go with it. It's just a piece of a hat. No, if I'm gonna wear if I'm gonna wear a visor, I'm gonna wear it the way God intended, upside down and slightly to the side. I didn't know you were a G. I didn't know you rolled like that. Ice, <laughs> ice, baby. <laughs> din, 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 din. <laughs> Looking like vanilla ice. Hey, thank you guys so much for tuning in again to another week of Entertain This. We're back next week with uh, some special guests. I'm very excited for the next episode. It's going to be a good one. <laughs> we'll see you guys then. This episode of Entertain This was produced by Nick Mustakangas with commentary from Michael Savoya and Alex Steele. Our theme music is Rush Bowl by Aaron Spencer. Tune in every Friday for new episodes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>